This episode is brought to you by Tegas, the only investment research platform built for the investor. With traditional research vendors, the diligence process is slow, fragmented, and expensive. That leaves investors competing on how well they aggregate data, not on their unique ability to analyze insights and make great investment decisions. Tegas offers an end-to-end platform with all the data you need to get up to speed on a company or on a market, with up-to-date financials, customizable models, management and culture checks, and of course, a vast and growing library of expert call transcripts. Tegas is changing the world of expert research and the investment process. Learn more and get your free trial at tegas.com slash Patrick. Today's episode is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn a 5.1% annual percentage yield with a high yield cash account. And while we can't say for certain that's the highest interest rate out there, we can say that at the time of this recording, that's higher than Robinhood, higher than SoFi, Marcus, Wealthfront, higher rate than Betterment, Capital One, Ally, Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo. I think you get the point here. If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description, U.S. members only. This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we venture into the world of HVAC to break down train technologies. Now, it's not often that I come across an industrial company with a $50 billion market cap that I just hadn't heard of. So when our guest today, Brett Larson, an investor at NZS Capital, suggested Train, it was as easy of a yes as I will give. Brett and I cover the long corporate history of Train, and like many industrials, it has lived a life paired under the umbrella of a conglomerate, along with a life of independence, including this most recent chapter. And we talk about the dynamics that separate residential HVAC from commercial HVAC, and how Train has helped create this unique consolidated industry. You may never look at your thermostat the same after this episode. So please enjoy this breakdown of Train Technologies. All right, Brett, I'm excited to have you on Breakdowns, and I'm excited to go back into the world of industrials broadly. I don't think that Train is a household name for consumers and even for investors potentially, But sporting a $50 billion market cap, it is a large name. So maybe we could just start at a high level with an introduction to what exactly Train does. Absolutely. And thanks for having me today, Matt. I'm excited to be here. 
high level, you could think of Train as participating in commercial HVAC globally, residential HVAC in North America, and then a transport refrigeration. So you might see a Train AC unit sitting outside of your house or one of their sub-brands, American Standard or Ameristar, Oxbox, or Runtrue. So that's about 20% of the business, and it's an 85 to 90% replacement business. The bigger chunk of the business is actually commercial HVAC at about 60%. And most have been in a commercial building, I would assume, that's had train equipment for climate control. So think of large water-cooled chillers in the basement or air-cooled chillers on the roof or smaller light commercial units. Or maybe you've noticed a van rolling around with a service technician with train on the side. So it's, again, 60%, about half of that is aftermarket service. And again, it's about 70% replacement on the equipment side. And then the last one, Thermo King or Transport Refrigeration, they sell the refrigeration units that keep the trailers cold. Once you learn about the business, you'll be cursed with having to look at the brand every time you drive by a refrigeration trailer. And that's 20% of the business as well. Super helpful. And there's a unique backstory here in terms of why it might not be as popular or well-known of a name. And that's because of a recent spin-out or spin-off. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the corporate history and how it came to be trained. Train itself traces all the way back to the early 1900s, which is pretty remarkable. But fast forward a century, they were a part of American Standard and were spun out and then reacquired shortly thereafter in 2008 by Ingersoll Rand. And they spent the next decade plus within Ingersoll Rand really getting the current operating system in place, which we can talk about later. But then in March 2020, Ingersoll Rand and Gardner Denver executed a reverse Morris Trust transaction where the industrial businesses within Ingersoll Rand merged with Gardner Denver and those businesses took the Ingersoll Rand name. And that left the climate businesses, so Crane and Thermo King, as a standalone business. And that was rebranded as Train Technologies. So that's how we ended up where we are today. It's always interesting to see, especially in industrials, you have independents become conglomerates, then become independents again. And it seems to be the cyclical bundling, unbundling, but just in the form of of businesses and companies. But interesting here, because I think it's something that you're seeing more and more where these specific end markets that have maybe fragmentation or opportunities to capture market share and really focus in on one core thing. In this case, it feels like HVAC. And excuse me if throughout the conversation, I say HVAC. But let's dive into that market a little bit. You talked a little bit about the differences between residential and commercial. And maybe we split it up and start on the commercial side. So talk a little bit about how big of a market or how you would separate that market on commercial HVAC and specifically for how train fits into that. Maybe setting aside the half of commercial HVAC for train, that's the aftermarket and services. And just looking at the equipment side, it's about 70% replacement. And the way to think about it is really in two categories. So there's what's referred to as light commercial, which is think of it as that the unit that you might see sitting on top of a Chipotle. It's a package system with all the components in the same unit. And it's actually, I think of it more similar to Resi in terms of the type of unit. And then the other half is large commercial or what's usually referred to as applied HVAC. And you can think of this as a collection of components that make up a much more heavily engineered system for a larger building, think of a hospital, data center, an office, or even industrial processes and the like that's applied. And within that, the workhorse of the refrigeration cycle is the chiller. So that's the most energy intensive piece of equipment in any building is the chiller. But also you're going to have the air handling units pumping the air through the different floors or pump cooling tower sensor. So it's a much more complicated system that's very heavily engineered. And within this segment, within commercial 
What is the go-to-market sales strategy like this? Are they doing a lot of it direct? Is there a major process in terms of the build-out of these buildings or with replacement where there's a lot of bidding going on? Can you just walk through what that's like in terms of the actual sale itself? It's also very different, again, commercial versus applied or large commercial. And I should say Train is 100% direct on their commercial businesses. So maybe 40% of light commercial is going to be emergency replacement. So that Chipotle is going to call you and say, our unit's broken and you're competing on obviously performance and price, but almost more importantly, how quickly can you get us this unit installed? And then there's another 40% that's going to be more planned replacement. And then 20% is new construction. And those categories are going to be more bid and performance and price are the key criteria. On the other end of the spectrum, applied or large commercial it's a lot more complexity. It ends up being a big project. It's a big outlay as well. There's a lot more of a process here that can take up to a year. Generally, what this looks like is the building owner decides that they're going to replace their system. And that could be for a variety of reasons. Maybe they want to reduce their scope to emissions as part of their commitments, or maybe they just decided it was time to because the system was so old, or maybe a train or somebody was in there pitching them on the value proposition and that got them over the ledge. But for whatever reason, they decide to replace it. They're usually going to loop in a mechanical engineer, an HVAC engineer to consult and really help set the basis of design. So think of that as the specs and performance requirements that they're then going to put into an RFP that gets bid on, they'll select, and then there'll be a project to replace the units. And when you think of what differentiates within that, how do you win that business? There's some sellable differences at the equipment level, maybe wider breadth of refrigerants, for example. But most have the range of equipment. When you think of for a chiller that's going to be operating for 25 years, maybe 10% of that lifetime cost is going to be the upfront CapEx for the chiller, whereas the rest is going to be the energy intensity. So you're more competing on system level efficiency and then really trying throughout the whole process to influence the basis of design that's going to go into the RFP to situate yourself really well to win that business. So this is where Train's direct channel is a really important differentiator for them. I should say it's known to be a very highly trained and technical channel. They're usually about 100% commission-based, each of the salespeople that they have, and they fight really hard to keep them. So they have top decile type of retention rates. And why it's so important is they're managing relationships with each of the constituents in this complex projects. HVAC engineers, the building owner, the boiler Bob who's fixing the units and has a say the general contractor, they're frequently being a really technical resource for them and trying to, again, influence the basis of design in their favor. And then another interesting thing is train trace is probably the most commonly used software for load and energy simulation used by these HVAC engineers. And it comes pre-populated with Train's product catalog. And you can go in there and you can manually enter the specs of different OEMs, equipment and the like. But that's obviously more cumbersome than just using what comes loaded. So maybe that has some impact. And then maybe I can just hit market share as well. So when you think of light commercial in North America, it's carrier and train are about half of the market. And then Linux, Aon, JCI, and then Daikin make up the rest. And then an applied, think of more chillers. So train, JCI, carrier is the big three. And then Daikin also has some participation as well. And then aftermarket services is super fragmented. And that's been a good growth opportunity for the OEMs we can talk about later. That data point on only 10% of the cost being the equipment upfront is particularly interesting. It's something I hadn't considered, but when making the buying decision, obviously that makes sense. Is that other 90% 
a split of the actual energy cost itself and the maintenance cost, or is it just the energy cost being that other 90%? My understanding is that the energy is probably going to be 70 to 80% of the lifetime cost, but then there's going to be a 10% maintenance or something around there as well. So 10, 10, 80 is how I generally think about it. It's a really unique dynamic when thinking about how to price when the buyer is making a decision based on this number that is taking into account 100% of the costs and the seller is basically taking 20% of the revenue associated with those costs. It's just something interesting I hadn't thought too much about before. It's interesting. Whenever you ask them about price, it's a difficult question to answer and applied because it's so much at like a system level and then value-based pricing as opposed to this unit costs this much. Now it costs this much. And the trace software that you referenced, that's software that could be used regardless of whether or not they're using a train piece of equipment. Think of it as when they loop in that HVAC engineer to help design the system that they're going to go bid or put out RFP for. That's one of the key pieces of software they'd use to essentially model the energy intensity of the system. And that's train-owned software. There are others, but it's the standard. So you can think if you're designing a system and you're dropping in different types of chillers to see how it impacts energy intensity, and ultimately what you settle on that goes to RFP, the specs that were used in that were the specific train equipment, you could see how that could have an impact. Is that software a material driver of revenue or does it show up much as a line item or is it an afterthought? It is a paid for software, but it's a rounding error. (laughs) It's interesting. It's probably a rounding error from a revenue standpoint, but maybe as more of a hidden benefit as you were referencing there. Let's transition a bit to the residential side of things, which I assume is a more simple process, as you mentioned, more aligned with light commercial. But talk a little bit about what that sales process is like and whether they're doing that direct, whether they use distributors, however it works. When we think of residential, again, train only participates in North America. And you can think of these as air conditioning units, furnaces, heat pumps, that's the equipment. It's a two-step distribution model in Resi. So the OEM sells to a distributor who sells to the dealer contractor that's in your home installing it. And some of the OEMs own a majority of their distribution. Lennox, for example, I think is 80% company-owned. Others are completely outsourced, like Carrier. They have their relationship with Wattsco. And then Train is about 50-50, company-owned versus independent distribution. It's largely a replacement market. And the sales process, how it works is my AC or furnace isn't working. I call a contractor or hopefully a few, and they'll come and assess it and tell me what it'll cost to fix the unit. And then they'll also provide quotes for new. And hopefully they'll capture in that discussion, the context of say rebates that are available for higher efficiency equipment, future regulations that might make for, if I kick the can replacing this unit today, a new unit's going to cost 15% more next year or something like that based on regulation. Ultimately, then the customer chooses what they'd like to do. And the contractor either has that inventory on hand or will go to the distributor and get it and then install it. So it's definitely a more simple process than the applied piece in commercial HVAC. And maybe some other detail here. So it's about half of the volumes are going to be the minimum efficiency level. So you're more competing on portfolio coverage and then operations. On the portfolio coverage side, each of the OEMs runs a multi-brand strategy. So premium and value brands. Train's a good example here. When they were acquired by Ingersoll Rand, they used to just participate in the premium side of Resi HVAC. So think of it as 6 billion of the 12 billion market they participated in. 
But then they brought to market Ameristar, which was a value brand for the premium channel. So if you were a train dealer sitting at the table with a homeowner and you used to only have the premium train product, but this homeowner just wanted the cheapest piece of equipment in their home, they would lose that 100% of the time. But now they have the train equipment, but they can also say, and we have this Ameristar brand as well. It hits at a different price point and it allows them to win some share that way. And then over the last few years, Trains rolled out a few other value brands for the value channel, which are run through an Oxbox. That expanded coverage has helped Train gain some share in Resi over the past decade, not just participating in the premium side anymore. And then the other one, operational challenges. The contractors and distributors are reluctant to change their OEM relationship just because of the friction it causes in their business, unless they're really given a reason. And in the past, there has been someone stumbles through a regulatory transition or someone has operational challenges and that can lead to share shifts. The most recent one was Linux, unfortunately, in 2018 had a tornado go through their manufacturing facility and it forced them to have to prioritize dealers in terms of who gets units and what types of units. You could see how that could create an opportunity for the other OEMs and the other OEMs took advantage of that, took some share. Then once it settles again, it's really hard to get that share back. So that's the nature of the resi industry. Sticky once it's in there with certain distributors. What is the rough market share? Is there a way to give rough estimates around that for train and residential? The top four are about 85 to 90%. And you can think of it as Carrier and then Goodman, which is owned by Daikin. So those two are the two biggest, and they're probably somewhere between 20 and 25% of the market each. So collectively, call it 50%. And then train and Linux are high teens market share. And then in the tail, that leaves you with Ream and then York, which is owned by Johnson Controls. So that's become relatively consolidated over the years. Everybody acts rationally, which you like to see. And then for anybody listening, if you're like, hey, none of those brands match the brand in my unit at home. Again, they all have multiple brands for the different price points. It's like the car dealerships. You can get the premium. You can get the entry level and work your way up. Makes a lot of sense. Forgive us for going back and forth between the two, but I think it's a good comparison. When you think about the commercial side and being able to actually offer a differentiated product, what does that look like? I can imagine just thinking about my own buying decision on the residential side. They might be able to tell me there's more bells and whistles and I might have some idea of it, but I imagine the differences are significantly less or there's not as much variance as there would be on the commercial side where it seems just from the size of the building and different things you have to think about, it's substantially different. So what does that look like? And how do you think about their product versus what the competitors, those that have legitimate market share in the industry? So again, in commercial HVAC, you're competing very much at the entire system level of a building and the energy intensity. And I think there are some differences at the product level, even to the extent that training, I think, has the widest breadth of different refrigerants that they offer a customer that have different GWPs, global warming potential of the refrigerants, for example. There are differences like that, but it's really more about at the system level. I would say Train is really known for having a really good direct sales force. It's very highly trained and very sophisticated and technical. And I think that is probably more of a differentiator in any specific bid than maybe at the equipment level. 
And thinking about that visibility in terms of what's going on, if I think about it like a dashboard and being able to see how the system is running in various places, is there a software component to what they're selling? Is it pure equipment sales? What does that look like? So HVACs and all the sensors and data that they now get off of it is going to plug up into a building management system. So there is a software component in order to gain visibility. I also think that this digital connectivity... So over the past 10 years, we've really gone to where now every piece of equipment rolling off the line is digitally connected. And what it really offers is the ability to remotely diagnose and watch equipment in the field to be able to better proactively service that equipment. But it also gives the OEMs, train plus their competitors, a head start with that visibility to capture the service and aftermarket from the independent service providers, which has been a great tailwind for those businesses. What does that, and you could split it between commercial and resi if it's drastically different on both sides, but what does that revenue mix look like in terms of new equipment versus replacement? In residential, for train, it's primarily an equipment business, very replacement driven again. In commercial HVAC, so the 60% of train that is commercial HVAC, half of that or a little more is aftermarket and service. And that's increased. So it's about 32% of the total company mix in 2022. And that's up about a thousand basis points since the global financial crisis. And is the expectation that that will continue to grow for the business? Absolutely. Like I mentioned, it's leveraging digital and the direct channel to capture the service relative to the independent service providers. And it's allowed the services piece of the business to compound at a high single digit CAGR for a long period of time. Honestly, it's still early innings in terms of the market share opportunity there. So that should be the expectation. What's the average life cycle for a commercial unit we'll start with? So a chiller, for example, can last anywhere from 20, 25 years. And what is a chiller? Just to ask the dumb question. A chiller is going to be the large piece of equipment that's circulating refrigerant. It's either the refrigerant's either interacting with water in the case of a water-cooled chiller that's then going through the building and going through the evaporating coils and cooling the air that's going to go through your building, or it's interacting with air in an air-cooled chiller. There used to be this, I don't know if it was an urban legend or not, but at the Goldman office there was this story that they overnight would have this humongous ice cube made when the energy costs were significantly lower. And that huge ice cube would eventually melt during the day, and that would be used as part of the AC system. Is that roughly feasible as something that would happen in a chiller system? Or is that just pure urban ledge? That is different from a chiller. But it's funny that you say that because Train does own that business, which is a form of energy storage in a sense. But yeah, the chiller is the big piece of equipment that's essentially the commercial version of that ducted split system you have at your house. Much more complex, but <laughs> that's the way to think about it. It's the workhorse of the HVAC. So those can last 20 to 30 years. And then I'm sure there's maintenance involved with those systems. Ductwork can obviously always have issues, but you're basically getting some type of ongoing aftermarket maintenance type revenue associated with whatever unit you install. And then potentially over a 20 to 30 year period, you might see the replacement as well. Exactly. And just in terms of the growth drivers, the chillers in broadly HVAC equipment has become so much more energy efficient that the value proposition to replace an old chiller is actually very compelling where you can have an economic payback that makes a lot of sense, but also make a meaningful dent in your 
company's carbon emission goals. Maybe we can talk about the demand side of things for commercial a bit as well. I would think about just new construction, obviously replacement as well. That's interesting to hear that the replacement angle is slightly adjusted when it comes to the payback period looking differently when a system is more energy efficient. I'm sure there's some ESG factors involved here as well. But what are the biggest drivers to you when you think about demand side from the commercial side of the equation? Definitely. I'll actually just put, I think at a high level, we can talk about resi and commercial HVAC together here. So there's three buckets of tailwinds to industry growth that I think about. So the first is that heating and cooling buildings makes up 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And addressing that's going to be a key lever reducing our carbon footprint as a society. The second is leveraging digital and services, which we touched on. And then the third is this new one called indoor air quality post-pandemic. I'll expand, but on the first one, decarbonization. So Train actually has their internal target to reduce the carbon emissions of their customers' footprint by a gigaton by 2030, which is a billion metric tons or 2% of world emissions. There's very few companies in the world that can have that type of impact, and it speaks to an important growth driver. So in commercial HVAC, for example, it's a really high non-zero-sum value proposition. They can sit down with a building owner and say, you have a 20-year-old chiller. We can replace that, greatly reduce the carbon footprint of your building, but with an economic payback of usually three to five years for a system that's going to last 25 years. So that's a 25 to 50% IRR. It's the stuff that I, as an investor, would love our CFOs to be investing in. And that value proposition is really, I believe it's pretty new and it's definitely accelerated over the last maybe seven to 10 years. So that's been a driver of growth. And then also under decarbonization is that HVAC is an industry that very much benefits from regulation, both in the form of sticks and carrots. So on the stick side, they're always increasing the standards for these systems to make them more energy efficient, which is driving a mixed benefit. Think of it as price, but it's more mixed. And then the next big one is in 2025, there's a refrigerant transition in North America residential, where we're moving to a mildly flammable refrigerant which means there's going to be new systems and safety incorporated in these systems, making more expensive. And it's probably going to be a 10% plus increase to the cost of a unit. And that's a mixed benefit for the industry. And that's not new. That's been helpful over the past decade. But then also in terms of carrots, so HVAC, there's incentives for heat pumps in the IRA. They expanded the incentives for investments that reduce the energy intensity of buildings within IRA. ESSER funding for K through 12, HVAC has been a huge beneficiary of that. That's the decarbonization piece, which I think is very compelling. Digital services. So again, it's very fragmented in services with the independent service providers. As we've connected all these units and have that visibility, it's a great outcome for the customer that they like because they can be more proactive and keep their system closer to spec. It gives the OEMs visibility to capture that share and be early. And then indoor air quality is something I know I'd never really thought about pre-pandemic, but coming out of the pandemic, definitely front and center for any building owner is, do I have the right amount of outdoor air coming in every hour? Do I have the right filtration system? And early on, that was more bespoke services and trying to get people back in the office and whatnot. But over time, to me, it's more just maybe something that would have been an add-on that most people didn't use previously. Maybe they're going to have that higher efficiency filter or use that UV or something like that. So the OEMs have talked about that being another 100 basis point tailwind longer term to the industry's growth. There's a lot of secular tailwinds here. 
I'm curious if you go back, and I'm not sure if the data was available, but global financial crisis, that 2015-16 industrial recession, did they see cyclicality in those periods of time? When you look at the actual revenue trajectory of the business, how much does it line up with those secular changes? Acknowledging that some of them may be more recent, so you haven't seen them come into play yet. But how has revenue trended over time and how cyclical has it been? In the global financial crisis, obviously, I would say especially unique in being building-centric. Housing. And housing-centric. So yeah, there's definitely cyclicality experience in 2015, 2016 as well. They grew through it, but it was a little bit softer. I think maybe the way to think about it is longer term, or the last 10 years, they've grown at a 6% CAGR. In that 2015-16 period, it was more low single digits. And the way I think about the growth is they don't break it out this way, but within that 6%, there's going to be called a point of price, a point of mix so that the regulatory tailwinds, and then the balance is going to be volume. And then train has been a share gainer in the industry over the past decade as well. When you think about the revenue visibility, is this a backlog type business where they have stuff contracted out and you have some visibility in terms of what that looks like? And how much forward outlook do you actually have as it aligns with their end markets? It's definitely different for each of the businesses. So I would say about 30% of the business or basically just the commercial HVAC equipment business is going to go through backlog per se and how there's an abnormal level of backlog and visibility. Essentially, as we sit here in 2023, I think the math says that trains, since most of their backlog is commercial HVAC equipment, that Pretty much most of 2024 HVAC equipment is in backlog, or definitely a very large chunk of it, which I think is a bit abnormal. I think more normal is probably half a year or something like that. Interesting to see what happens with supply chains and demand and how long these things can sustain, but there's certainly secular tailwinds there. Talking about the share gains, who has that come at the expense of? Is it smaller players? Are they taking share from larger players? How much has the industry consolidated in recent years? If you'll let me, I think it's important to say that that wasn't always the case for Train, actually to be the share gainer. So if you backtrack to when Train was acquired by Ingersoll Rand, maybe due to lack of cash available prior to being acquired or focus when they're being acquired, they weren't ready for one of those regulatory transitions on the resi side. So they had to scramble to get ready. They ultimately did have the product, but then they missed a loophole that essentially let the old generation product sell for a bit and they lost a lot of share. So what happened was Mike Lamock joined and he previously in his career, he ran a business that was a supplier to Toyota and he really was evangelized with the Toyota production system. He joined Ingersoll Rand in 2004 and ultimately was CEO in 2010. He really worked to instill not TPS itself, but their version of it within train The first three years or so was focused on getting the data, value stream mapping, just the blocking and tackling of quality and on-time delivery and the like. And culturally, that wasn't easy at all. So I think of the top 300 employees, more than half had to be replaced and largely externally just to get engagement. And then the next phase of that, which I think is really critical, was taking that value stream mapping and specifically what they call product growth teams or PGTs. And essentially what these are, they're cross-functional teams that think of a person from engineering, a person from sales, a person from ops. They're assigned to a specific product or customer segment within the different business units. 
And their dual mandate is take share and expand margins, and they are held accountable and compensated on it. Again, it's all about value stream mapping, what the customer cares about. It could be a new product introduction. Train is religious about innovation, but it could also be tightening the cycle time between when you receive an order and you can get the equipment to them or having inventory placed locally. And as they piloted that, they saw two to three X the growth of their peers in those categories that they had PGT. So they expanded that out across the entire business. And I think that's really a key differentiator, that piece of their operating system today. And then the last phase here is the reverse Morris Trust we talked about and really focusing the company on the singular focus of decarbonizing. Within that, they took the opportunity to completely clean sheet the business. They combed through 600 different cost centers. If it was neutral or better, they pushed down any functions to the SBUs instead of corporate. And then they took any savings from this and they plowed it right back into reinvestment to, again, drive growth, drive share gains. So that's that along with direct channel and the sophistication of their sales force is, I think, the secret sauce of their share gains. And in terms of who it's come from, you can benchmark all the peers and you can see who the share gainers are. But even Carrier and Johnson Controls in past years have been open about needing to reinvigorate innovation and share losses. It's interesting because we do see a lot of industrial businesses where they end up as dominant market players and controlling markets. And they're usually either consolidating the industry or finding ways to push competition away. The idea that Train was able to do that, grow 2 to 3x what some of the peers were, and grow margins at the same time, it sounds like, feels very, very unique just from the investor's perspective. Is the management team viewed as best in class? I know that's a silly question to ask when you describe it that way. But is that generally accepted in the industry or have other major industry players been able to accomplish similar share gains and margin growth? I would say for us, the management team is key for any business we're investing in. Mike Lamock actually handed off to his longtime number two in 2021, Dave Regnery. And Dave has spent his entire career in train and he's the perfect fit for the culture they've instilled. I would be very shocked if there was any other CEO in the industry that knew HVAC and the technology and the business of HVAC better than Dave Regnery. So I think that's important. But I would also say, to me, it's not a jockey bet because I think that's the whole purpose of the operating system. A story to drive that home is, I remember it was early 2022. So it was Omicron, component constraints, inflation, you name it. There was a lot of fires to be put out. And I was in a group meeting and another investor just threw out the boilerplate question. There's all these issues. What are you worried about? Dave responded, one, my travel because my daughter's getting married this weekend. But two, more seriously, it's cultivating the culture and capital allocation. And I think the only way that's possible is obviously he had a pulse on everything that was going on. But the only way that's possible is if you have a rigorous operating system with leaders that are engaged and that you trust below you. The system is set up in such a way where there's important pieces. And as long as you have the right players to operate in that system, it can continue to succeed. Hammering home on the margin point, talk a little bit about how that's trended over time. And you could do it separately by segment or at a consolidated level. Margins have been increasing. Today, it's a 32% gross margin business. And I think this year, it's going to be about a 16% operating margin business. And over time, the climate piece of business, so going back to within Ingersoll Rand, has had incremental margins of north of 25%, if you just do the math. And that's their flywheel. That's their target. 
So they outgrow, they target 25% incrementals and anything above that they reinvest. So that's what should be expected going forward. In some ways, the mid-teens operating margin profile makes it hard to compete in that industry. So it's interesting. And then getting to that area, you still have a long way to go in terms of the runway. And if you're growing at those incrementals, it's quite attractive. I would say generally I hear mid-teens operating margin. That doesn't sound like super sexy or very good in the grand scheme of a lot of businesses. But I do think it's worth pointing out that the returns in this business are fantastic. So it's high teens to 20% RIC, but it's north of 100% return on tangible capital. And they generate a lot of cash. The perception on margins too, I think has shifted quite a bit over the years. And it's important to keep the entire business in mind. You referenced a little bit there just in terms of the return profile, in terms of free cash flow conversion, what they have to invest back into the business. It sounds like it's fairly capital light, asset light. How much of net income actually converts to cash flow? And are there any other cash flow dynamics that are worth mentioning? Generally speaking, it's going to be, and what we've seen historically is at or above 100%. So CapEx usually runs 1.5% of sales. DNA is about 2%. So just right there, there's a little help. And then networking capital usually runs in the low single digit percent. So it's very capital light and most of net income converts to free cash flow. And a lot of these industrial businesses, industrial niches, you see consolidation. Has M&A been a key piece of the story or is it expected to be in the future? Like we spoke about earlier, HVAC is pretty consolidated. Crane does, on average, over time, it's about one to two points of top line. In addition to that mid-single plus organic, they'll add on another one to two of M&A. It's not going to be anything, or I hope it's not anything transformational. I honestly don't think regulators would allow it at this point. But they've had great success in terms of bolt-ons. So one of the key differentiators we talked about is just the channel. So they have one of the best, probably the best channel in the industry. And they've had great success buying innovative technology and plugging it into that channel. Maybe taking that technology, innovating some more around it before plugging it in. But some of them have been close to 100% cash ROIC in terms of the returns on that type of acquisition. So I'm always excited to see those. They've been buying back some of their channel, but now there's not much left. And then the last one, I want to categorize it really as a tech bolt-on to plug into the channel. It's a little bit of a new category, but it's still small as they've been acquiring life sciences refrigeration. It's an interesting space they've entered. Thinking about that business, is it related to the reefer transportation with life sciences and medicine? Is it in that segment of the business? So that's how they first became aware of it, was actually trying to spin up a product to transport with vaccines. So that's how they became aware of it. But I believe it's actually within the commercial HVAC business, not Thermo King. I remember first looking at transportation and hearing about reefer vans and what was actually going on, assuming it was just transporting beer or something, and not realizing that some of the highest cost product that gets transported is happening. And it's because of very specific conditions needed might be related to life sciences. It could be other hazardous materials that need to get moved. So it's an interesting niche. I don't know how much of a needle mover it could potentially be, but to see them connecting the dots between transportation and the commercial HVAC is interesting. I wanted to touch on one other growth engine just from the cheap seats. We hear a lot about data centers, GPUs, the demand for a lot of this. There's also a huge amount of environmental, not waste necessarily, but a lot of energy consumed and a lot of need for HVAC units within those particular sites. Is that a needle mover? Is that something that comes up a lot when you think about this business? I'm curious because it feels like one of those things in 
A lot of it could be overhyped in terms of what's driving it, whether it's AI or other engines, but it does seem to be something that's coming up more and more consistently. I think absolutely. Commercial HVAC touches every end market in buildings, but data center has definitely been one of the growthiest of them. And as we think about even fabs being built domestically and that there's going to be a lot of climate control involved in that as well on the chip side. So yes, I do think it's a needle mover. It's just an important reminder that as we think about maybe some areas of commercial real estate that might be under pressure, there's others that are offsetting that. And trains channel and the ability to be nimble and redirect resources to different end markets is important in navigating all the different end market dynamics. If I think about adding this all up and looking at the business, again, investor hat on, thinking about valuing this type of business, which is growing revenue, has some secular tailwinds. What type of framework do you use for valuing a business like Train? And what does the industry generally use, whether it's metrics or anything else? I look at relative free cash flow yield for sure, just in terms of the relative multiple. But then the other way I like to look at it is just looking at what's implied in the stock in terms of the free cash flow per share CAGR to return a double digit type of TSR over time. I think it's that type of investment, a resilient business. And today, that math gets me to a low double digit free cash flow per share CAGR, which I think is well within the range of outcomes. As you think about maybe the base case being mid single digit plus top line, 25% incrementals, two thirds of free cash flow going to share repo and MA. I think that gets you there. And then there's a range of outcomes around that. Super interesting to hear that it makes a lot of sense for this type of business where earnings actually convert to cash flow at 100% or potentially even higher when you mention those DNA versus CapEx dynamics. So it's always nice to hear the different methodologies. And I think in industrials in particular, free cash flow yield and just the traditional PEs are common. You can understand why you would use one versus the other in this particular case. Are there any other major growth drivers that we didn't talk about that you think are relevant to the story or other anecdotes that you think are a key piece to this business? So one, I think we should probably touch on transport refrigeration. I glossed over it, which unfortunately is always the case, but it's 20% to HVAC at 80. A common question, or it used to be more common, is does transport refrigeration fit with the HVAC businesses? And I've actually really come to appreciate this business. I think one, it absolutely fits. There's a ton of overlap in terms of the refrigeration cycle, your compressors, heat exchangers. It's the same components. It is more cyclical. It's tied to the class eight cycle to an extent, but it's also a duopoly, them and carriers, transit cold business. And it substantially outgrows the end market based on innovation. So similar to the HVAC side, and it has similar tailwinds in terms of regulation towards decarbonization and the like that make it a nice business that shouldn't be dilutive to growth. And it's actually their highest margin business. I mean, that 20%, is that where you expect it to hover over time? Yeah, generally speaking, especially I think there's probably more opportunity in terms of the 1% to 2% of M&A a year is going to be more on the HVAC side. So that alone is going to mean that the mix will continue to shift. But yeah, I think roughly speaking, I wouldn't expect that to change too dramatically. And then on the other side, risks associated with this business. We talked a little bit about cyclicality, but anything else, whether it's technology related competition, what else would you think about when it comes to risks? So there are cycles. That's obviously one to keep in mind. To the extent they don't all line up and you also have the nice aftermarket services business, they've been able to grow through cycles in one in market. So Resi, the units are actually down this year. Thermo King 2024 will probably be down, but the other business is growing. 
On the technology side, I think a key risk like in 2008 when Train wasn't a share gainer, it's staying on top of all of the regulatory changes at a country by country level, at a state by state and city by city level. It's very complicated. So you have to be ready. And then really, otherwise, what I think most about anything that disrupts the value prop of we can replace your chiller and get you a three to five year payback on it, for example. It might sound silly to think about, but we talk about what if with the advancements of AI, we get a breakthrough on fusion technology and we have abundant cheap energy and that value proposition goes away. Obviously, it take forever to build it out, but those are the types of things that we think about. I think ultimately there will be something. And with Train, we think that we're invested behind a broad prediction with a company that's creating win-win outcomes for customers. It's going to be less disruptable for that. And then with a resilient operating system and a long-term oriented management team. No, it's nice to hear actual risks named. Sometimes we don't get too many risks named by guests, which maybe shows a little bit of a bias. So even if it's a very small chance, need to be aware of those things those disruption risks. And yeah, anything is ultimately possible. And you touched a little bit just in terms of different regulatory dynamics in the US versus abroad. How much is the international piece of this? How important is that to the growth story? How much are they focused on growing abroad? Is there very different dynamics versus what's going on in the US? Trains more America-centric, about 80% of profits. And you can think of it in the Americas, they have commercial HVAC, residential, and thermoking. But in Europe and Asia, they don't do residential HVAC. And even within commercial HVAC, they only do the really sophisticated stuff with chillers and big systems. So applied HVAC. And then they do thermoking. So very America-centric. Well, this has been excellent. We close these conversations out with lessons that you can potentially apply elsewhere as an investor. So when you think about train, what are the lessons that you think you could take away and use elsewhere? I think this is one of my favorite questions from your and all of your episodes. I think the two that come to mind is first, just investing in quality industries behind broad predictions and decarbonization in this case. But I think with a few exceptions in this industry, HVAC has been great in terms of stock performance over a long period of time. I mean, it's just writing this broad prediction in a sense. It's been a helpful tailwind. Specific to train, I think this culture built around innovating towards a mission that employees actually care about, but then also that mission happening to also align with what their customers care about and that value proposition. So the alignment of the culture, the mission of the employees, and what's going to drive demand for a customer. I think you don't always find that, but it's very powerful when you do. So those would be the two that come to mind for me. Very powerful and very interesting to hear that it wasn't always necessarily the DNA. It was someone came in and people came into the organization and were able to instill those processes and procedures and that culture, which I think is good to know as an investor where you can always make changes. And this has been excellent. Love exploring new industries and new niches and really have enjoyed the conversation. So thank you very much, Brett. Yeah, of course. I really enjoyed that. Thanks for having me, Matt. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 